Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I'm releasing another talk from our recent Micromobility World Conference. This one is with Matt Iglesias, a pioneering political blogger and self-described e-bike dad on why electric bikes and other small electric vehicles offer a compelling alternative to solve the urban mobility dilemma. Matt has a wealth of knowledge about the interplay of politics, transport, and land use, and Julia is an excellent host to ask him about it, given her role at Rocky Mountain Institute working on these things. This was a really compelling and interesting 50 minutes, and I really hope that you enjoy it. And now, here is Matt and Julia. Let's go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Micromobility World. I'm Julia Thane, and I'm going to be moderating our discussion today with Matthew Iglesias about the unpacking of the e-bike revolution. Matthew Iglesias is a political blogger, a columnist, and an author. He's written for publications like Slate and The Atlantic and about everything from monetary policy to parking reform. He co-founded the popular news site Vox Media, and today you can find his writing weekly in the slow, boring substack. He's also the author of the book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Let's dive right in. So Matthew, I'm going to start with a bit of a personal question. I mean, from your Twitter tagline, you are an e-bike dad. That's the first thing that it says. <laughs> and I wondered if you could take us through your personal journey of getting into e-bikes. What inspired you? What do you like about them? You know, what, what got me into e-bikes, I mean, I've been reading about them. I had some friends uh, who have them and use them and have been enjoying them. But I had a change in my schedule that has led me to, I, I live in Washington, D.C. I live in a very walkable, uh, transit-oriented neighborhood of D.C. But there was a um, physical therapist I started going to whose office is in, it's not that far from my house, but it's it's not walkable. It's not in my neighborhood. And it's not on a metro line. And, you know, so I was, I was driving out there a couple times a week and it was a little bit of a pain, you know, you're moving this big vehicle. I'm there. I'm trying to make sure I'm fitting within the allowed parking window. There's a restaurant over there that I like. And so I say, well, you know, I should stop in there for lunch, but then I got to get back out and get to the meter. And, you know, I have my friends with the e-bikes and I was like, you know, this would be a much more practical way to make this trip of a few miles that, you know, I don't need any cargo for. And what I really want to do is simplify the parking. And if I can get some, you know, some exercise some physical activity, in with it as well, but why not? So, you know, I went and I, and I bought one. I've got a, a Rad City bike and it's a lot of fun, you know? And once you have it, it's useful for lots and lots of different applications, which I think is, you know, an important part of transportation economics, right? Which vehicle you have at your disposal is a big factor in terms of which is useful for which use cases. So I got it specifically to make this one kind of trip out to the Palisades. But once you have it, you know, it's very practical for a kind of wide range of, of urban mobility needs. That's really interesting, Matthew. And what I'm hearing from you is that it started with a practical decision, and then it was something that just became fun. And so you were able to use it for a variety of reasons. I want to get to this uh, point about parking that you just made, and one of the practical reasons that you made the switch to an e-bike. A big theme in your book, in One Billion Americans, is the interplay between transportation and land use. 
and how you can't move more people in cities without rethinking things like parking, housing, and zoning. So, you know, first question is really, how do you see the role of the car and now the electric SUV in American society? And how do you start to really roll back the supremacy of the car in urban planning? Yeah, I mean, cars are obviously an incredibly useful technology. There's a reason why once cars are invented, once people become affluent enough, they want to buy cars. Cars are also just, they're large, right? And large cars are are very large. And people want to be able to park their cars uh, when they're driving them because it's it's not useful if you can't park it. But we've developed in the United States, at least, a regulatory norm that says, well, we're going to require enough parking to come with all new construction so that everybody can park their giant cars around where everything is. And that meets a certain kind of baseline need, like, well, I I need to have my car and then I need a place to park the car. So we need the rule to be that you have to build all this parking. But it creates these very unpleasant neighborhoods uh, that people Mm. don't like to be in nearly as much as they enjoy spending time in more traditional neighborhoods that don't have these huge agglomerations of parking. Uh, So, you know, I don't think that we need to move to a world in which, like, there isn't any parking anywhere or nobody is allowed to build it. It's practical in a lot of kinds of situations. But if you say, look, people should be allowed to build as much or as little parking as they think is suitable to the neighborhood, to the economics of the situation, you know, then you get more pleasant places to be, even though it is going to be more challenging for some people to get there. But that then becomes an important reason to say, well, why do we need such a large vehicle, right? Now, there's a reason people have a desire for them, which is that sometimes you actually do need to carry incredibly large quantities of things from one place to another. But if you look, I mean, you go to any street in any city, you go to the highway, you look at the vehicles that are on the road, the vast majority of people at any given time are not using the capacity of their vehicle, right? right? They have uh, they have massively overpurchased like transportation horsepower for what they're doing with the majority of their trips, you know, we're being overserved essentially. And then we are designing our whole cities around the idea that we need to move these very large, mostly empty vehicles through them. And if we can say instead, look, for most trips, you don't need a big vehicle. You should use a small vehicle. And then we can build for small vehicles and have just much more pleasant places. We can, you know, say yes to growth. We can address a lot of things if we don't have our whole politics and society kind of dominated by this fear of parking. Yeah. And Matthew, I'm starting to think about uh, this uh, question of the urban mobility dilemma and the fixed uh, nature of urban form. I mean, in my day job, I work on land use and housing and transportation for the Climate Action Nonprofit Rocky Mountain Institute. And -hmm. we think a lot about how the decisions around uh, investing in car-based infrastructure has really shaped the way in which our cities are in the U.S. And for that matter, has almost made us fixed and um, uh, driven, no pun intended, into uh, electric cars, uh, uh, let alone, you know, cars themselves. So what potential do you see for the electric bike, for other forms of micromobility vehicles to start solving this urban mobility dilemma and to maybe take back that like fixed nature of urban form in U.S. cities? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's just a lot of scope for saying we can have people start to get around places where parking scarcity already exists, which is true in older neighborhoods, using, you know, micro-mobility solutions, using smaller vehicles, uh, but also starting to say, look, like we don't need to build around the assumption that every trip needs to be done in a large car, right? You know, if you read anything, you know, 
conventional free market type stuff, right? People say, look, you know, what's what's good about markets is they're adaptable and we can innovate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but transportation and land use evolve with each other, right? You look at any technology that's powerful. Uh, railroads would not be useful if you didn't build communities around the train stations, right? If you had just said, well, we have this land use pattern from a time when there were no trains, and that's going to be fixed in place, even though we now have this technology, it, it wouldn't work. And again, cars, very useful. But if we didn't pave roads, right, if, if we said everything has to be the same as it was before cars, they wouldn't have been that useful. And, and what we have right now is land use frozen in place around a, a paradigm that assumes what well, we don't have any alternative means of transportation. And we need to relax that, you know, and to say, look, we should let people experiment to some extent. I mean, I don't think we fully know the balance between bikes and scooters and electric vehicles and maybe like little pod shaped electric vehicles have some potential. Uh, I think that, you know, mobility as a service has become an important part of the micro mobility world, but that could also move up into larger vehicles. So it could be an interplay between that, right? I mean, if you could take for every trip, the vehicle that was appropriately sized to your actual needs for that actual trip, that would be great. Because what we have right now is we say, look, if one day in a hundred, I need to carry four people and three suitcases, that has to be my vehicle. And now I have this giant vehicle that carries four people and three suitcases, and I'm taking it, you know, to the dentist. Right. But like, why? Right. Why? Why do you need that? That's <laughs> right. the assumption that you have to buy one vehicle one time and then use it for everything rather than saying, I'm going to take a vehicle that is appropriate to the trip that I'm currently. Now, of course, look, people don't want a garage that has like 12 different vehicles in it. Right. Or maybe but, they do. Know, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I think these days, you know, we're, we're used to seeing more and more goods transformed into services. Right. I mean, I have a lot of friends who take scooters around DC and they don't, they don't own a scooter. The point is they pick one up when they need it. They ride it where they want to go. If it turns out that the weather is nicer in the afternoon, then they walk back home. And instead of scooting, if one isn't available, you know, they, they might take a bus, do something else like that. And, you know, this is something about information technology has let us be much more flexible in terms of how do we find things? You know, I remember when Zipcar was first invented, right? And it was um, it was laborious to use because it was like, well, how would you know where the Zipcars are? But now everybody has mobile phones all the time. Everything has GPS in it. So it, it's easy to know where things are. So more things can be done casually. They can be done as services. And that then raises the question of like, well, why are we driving empty cars all the time? Mm. Why aren't we using these big vehicles when we need a big vehicle and using a smaller one, you know, which is more fuel efficient. It can be more enjoyable. Uh, it can be easier to park. It has all these other kinds of advantages. And then it also becomes, you know, a question of lifestyle on some level. I mean, I, you know, like most people these days, um, care somewhat about my physical fitness, about my weight, about my appearance. And if you can build a little bit of physical activity into daily life uh, without it being incredibly arduous, you know, uh, biking uphill is hard. Uh, you don't necessarily want to do that, like wearing a suit on your way to a business meeting and you show up covered in sweat. 
Uh, but biking on flat ground, you know, is easy. And it's a fun way to build a little bit of activity into your routine, right? And the e-bike lets you kind of have the best of both worlds in, in those regards, right? So we're we're innovating in the transportation space. But unless we get less prescriptive with our land use, we can't unlock the power of those innovations. Yeah. And Matthew, you're bringing up a few different themes, and I want to go in a couple of different uh, directions, starting with this question about shared versus uh, owned. So you mentioned you live in D.C. D.C., in my mind, is actually one of the great U.S. transportation cities. I'm just going to say that mm-hmm. and we'll see if you agree with it or not. But there's a great shared bike system. Um, mm-hmm. People are also choosing to buy e-bikes. Why? You know, across the U.S., we've seen that shared micromobility has really struggled pre and during and post pandemic. But privately owned micromobility is booming. So does that mean, you know, we're selfish? What, 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 what do you see as the trends? Why, why are we going privately owned versus shared? Well, you know, I mean, I do think that one reason that privately owned was a good solution for me is that I have this garage out back of my house. Um, Mm. So I have a good place to put it. And the question is, why do I have a garage in the back of my house? Um, And the answer is, well, it was here when I bought it. Uh, But also (laughs) the, the the house is required to have not one, but two parking spaces. If that was changed, right, suppose I was allowed to convert that garage into an accessory dwelling unit, Uh, there would be very large financial upside to me to doing that, right? Then I wouldn't have a place to store my e-bike at night. And the sort of cost benefit of shared versus owned might switch for me, you know, so I, I think that there's sort of constant feedback between these Mm. land use things and the transportation decisions that people made. uh, Because, you know, and I think in most of the country, having vehicle storage for a small vehicle is pretty easy. Uh, And so people are going to tend to prefer privately owned as long as they're not that expensive. But in other places, you know, in, um, I, I grew up in Manhattan, and parking anything in Manhattan. Very expensive. <laughs> it is it is it is not typical for people there to have a private parking space. People's uh, apartments tend to be quite on the small side. Space is very 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 valuable. So I think that shared has a kind of an obvious use case the more you know the less sort of private space you have to yourself. And, you know, it's, I'm both glad to have my garage and then also sometimes uh, embittered that I'm not allowed to turn into something that would be more valuable Mm. to me and probably more valuable to the community. I mean, housing is quite scarce uh, in the United States of America right now. I have a garage that contains a car that I don't use on most days. It contains an e-bike and it contains, I don't know. I mean, I've got a giant stack of um paper towels I bought at Costco, Uh, but that's not like the hot. It's it just, it just, it's not the highest and best use of scarce land in an in-demand neighborhood uh, that, you know, ha- has very high rent. So we're struggling with homelessness in D.C. And, you know, it would be good to see more conversion of more spaces into into dwelling for people. And I think that that might lend itself to, to more reuse of shared. Right. And ironically, this legacy of car-based infrastructure, so your garage, is the reason why you were able to have an e-bike. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about just cars and car policy mm-hmm. in the U.S. I mean, historically, almost all transportation modes have been very heavily subsidized by the government. Here in the U.S., I mean, it's no surprise to anybody listening to this, nor to you, that the auto industry has been supported and bailed out numerous times. Now it's electric SUVs, 
because Mm -hmm. we're not really talking about cars anymore. We're talking about much larger vehicles are getting Mm -hmm. really big subsidies. I mean, you said in one of your articles, there's never really been a concerted government push for e-bikes. Why? Mm -hmm. Like, why do you think the owned micromobility market hasn't gotten that government support? What would happen if it did? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a very deep legacy of political involvement with the auto industry in the United States, um, and it is uh, hard to sort of break, right? Um, you know, there's a labor union issue where you know we have a very a, a largely non-union private sector in the United States, but the Midwestern-based auto industry is an important exception to that. So it is seen as important to the kind of larger labor community to specifically support the automobile industry. You know, there's also a lot of identity kind of tied up with cars. I mean, one of the reasons I put e-bike dad there in my Twitter profile <laughs> is, you know, I mean, I mean, I am, I am a dad. I have an e-bike. I have friends, other dads who, who who ride their e-bikes. But you know, trying to create a bit of sort of buzz and identity around different ways of, of getting around um, is a kind of an interesting project for me. But I mean, I do think that you know, cities which have sort of more progressive politics that have greater, you know, geographical constraints on what they're doing should be trying to to lead on the bikes issue. And that that's both a question of land use, which is very much under their own house. And then, yeah, I mean, they can provide subsidy if they think that cost is really a huge barrier. The flip side, of course, is, you know, an e-bike is... um, I don't. It, it's not a trivial expense. I mean, they they cost a real amount of money, but they are much cheaper uh, than cars and SUVs. Um, you know, so it's a it's a very convenient, low cost alternative to people. And I think if you look at the whole suite of measures around micro mobility and land use, right? You are you are talking about cost savings, right? You are talking mm. about getting people into a lifestyle where their housing costs are lower because they don't need as much vehicle storage, where the vehicle they're using is cheaper because it's smaller, where the fueling needs are much lower. Um, ultimately, I think that a lot of people in the American environmental community have not fully run the numbers on mm. batteries. You know, on the batteries are batteries are great. Um, And both electric cars and micromobility have been created by uh, the falling cost of batteries. But the mineral resources that are consumed in creating a very large number of very, very, very large batteries, you know, are not trivial. Right. It's better for the planet than uh, burning fossil fuels indefinitely. But it's not nothing. You know, I, there is a there is a real difference between people mostly relying on small batteries and people mostly relying on enormous batteries. And when you look at the comprehensive environmental footprint, you know, you start to see a very different picture. And, you know, uh, climate change is a really important issue. Um, there has sure. been a lot of very specific focus on CO2 emissions, but people were concerned about the environment before the specifics of the climate change issue came to the fore. And, you know, there's just a broader kind of dimension uh, of questions about, you know, exactly how much lithium do we imagine uh, digging up out of the ground uh, more? I mean, I think under, even if we're all e-bikes, we're, we're going to need more battery factories. We're going to need more lithium. We're going to need more of that stuff. But you but you do want to think about, like, what is the comprehensive uh, resource intensity? And, and what are we really enabling, right? I mean, sure. it's great to have, you know, we need freight in the world, 
right? We, we need to move like huge amounts of commodities around from place to place. So to the extent that we can electrify large vehicles to do that, to meet the needs of the trucking industry, like that's incredible, right? Or if we could move even bigger stuff. But the fact is, is that like most of the trips most of us take, uh, we're moving one person and like maybe their laptop, right? Like you just <laughs> you don't, it, it's, it's incredibly wasteful, right? And so it's not, it's not conservation in the sense of asking people to do less with less. It's like get resources that are suited to what you are actually already doing, which is like mostly not carrying an SUV that's full of things. Yeah, yeah. This question about the climate impacts of electric vehicles, of electric mobility, especially vis-a-vis a car, or for that matter, just walking, I think is a really important one. And agree that that's something that um, researchers, nonprofit organizations like you know RMI are really only starting to uncover this fall, actually, sorry, not this fall, this winter, we're, we're not in fall anymore. This winter, um, <laughs> RMI is going to be putting out a piece uh, just looking at the difference in emissions benefits between owning an electric vehicle, owning an e-bike, owning an EV plus an e-bike or owning an internal combustion engine uh, versus an e-bike. So I won't tease those results too much. Um, but long story short, you know, even when you look at life cycle emissions, there's certainly a lot of climate benefits from e-bikes. Um, Matthew, you know, in 1 Billion Americans, you talk a little bit about how climate isn't necessarily the framework for which we should be putting forward uh, any solutions, including things like e-bikes. But I'm wondering, you know, in this case, how much should people care about the climate impacts of e-bikes? How much is that a useful organizing principle for pushing forward e-bikes? How much should uh, climate impacts be um, determining what sort of incentives are put in place uh, for e-bikes, if any? Well, you know, I mean, look, if, if we're doing incentive programs for personal transportation with the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act includes significant electric vehicle title. And the goal of that title is to promote reduced carbon emissions. Uh, so if that's what you're doing, uh, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to the world to do the math properly. Right. In terms of what really are the benefits of this, the, the, the benefits of getting people to switch from internal combustion engine cars to electric cars are, are real. But the benefits of switching from an internal combustion engine car to an e-bike are much larger. Uh, and the fact that there's significant subsidy for the former, but none for the latter is that's just bad policymaking. You know, on another level, like I don't think we're necessarily going to kind of carbon footprint scold people into mm. uh, <laughs> redesigning their personal lifestyle. You, you know, sure. it's the you know the subsidy is a technical matter, right? I mean, people at the Treasury Department they need to write these regulations. EPA needs to look at it. They they should do it correctly, right? And not just kind of assume that anything that's electric is equivalent, but. You know, as a community of people who care about these things, I mean, I think the points to make is that, look, we're trying to make people's lives better, right? We're trying to help you live a healthier existence. We're trying to say, look, we can have uh, growth in our in-demand communities. You know, th there are certain cities in America. Oh, Denver, I know, right, is a is a place. Mm. A lot of people have been moving there. A lot of people have been moving to Colorado. Uh, Colorado is a beautiful state, right? That's a big part of the reason that people want to go there. And then the question is, is like, well, how how will Colorado accommodate that growth? Will they have a level of sprawl that destroys the beauty of the landscape that drew people there in the first place? Will they say, no, you can't move here, 
we're not going to build more housing for people. This is going to be a gated community. Uh, if your parents bought a place here, you know, good for you. And if not, you're locked out. Or are we going to say, look, like we can build infill and we can, you know, have more people within the footprint that already exists, which is going to create a great place for people to live that combines the virtues of natural landscape with the sort of dense urban amenities and, and great lifestyle options there. But people are going to say, if you start talking about density and infill, they, they say, like, where am I going to park? You know, you can get very ideological, you know, academic arguments about this, but real people who every day are getting in their car and relying on their car to get to the grocery store, to get to the doctor's office, to get to their kid's school, they don't want changes to their community that are going to make it impossible for them to get around. And the fact that we have smaller vehicles that can meet most of these transportation needs that we don't have to force you into, but to say, look, the uh, infrastructure should allow you to do it. You should not be required to have cars to get around. You shouldn't be required to have huge parking lots everywhere. Um, we can build a better, nicer place for you and your family to live in, uh, which is going to mean, look, it's going to be easier to have kids or for kids to grow up and, and you know, live in neighborhoods that they grew up in, that we can have uh, you know, a society that has room for all of us uh, because it doesn't have to have like 12 acres of parking for every person. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just an important, it's an important part of just like having a, having a nicer future, a thriving mm -hmm. set of communities. You talked a little bit about Denver and I know you were giving the example of people moving to Denver, people moving to Colorado, it just being a mm -hmm. nice place to live. But of course, in the e-bike world, Denver is rising to the top because the city of Denver has offered um, incentives and subsidies uh, and instant rebates for people to be able to purchase e-bikes and e-cargo bikes. And in the past you know, um, year that they've been doing it, six months, a year that they've been doing it, have been oversubscribed every month. Uh, I think mm -hmm. one of the months that they did it, within seven minutes, all of the rebates had been claimed. Uh, and now they're relaunching it in January with a slightly different program. But I'm curious, you know, what cities and states uh, do you see doing this combination of e-bike incentives or bike infrastructure and land use well? How do you think they should be doing it? You know, where besides Denver um, should really be investing uh, in the same types of changes? You know, I mean, everything's been a bit of a, a mixed bag in terms of different kinds of reforms in the United States. Um, California, just sort of the past year, pushed through a lot of ambitious land use reforms. Uh, that I think are really, really good. I think that they have not done anything really big on the transportation side, but that would be the sort of next logical step for them. You know, as a as a lifelong East Coast resident, I, I just always find California to be the greatest tragedy. It's like, <laughs> it, it's, 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 well, because because it's insane that like in Boston we have the highest number of people walking to work uh, in these mm. like awful winters with ice everywhere. And then you go to Los Angeles and, you know, you, you walk in a circle around the block and you're like, this is amazing. But, like, <laughs> you can't go anywhere. Right. Uh, what would be a better place than Southern California to do I, I mean, I agree. 95% yeah. <laughs> of <laughs> your travel Angeles, on foot yeah. and on bicycle. Right. right, right. Um, you know, you know, that that's fantastic. And I think it's such a clear win there again to, to just paint a picture to people of it's like yes it's good for the environment but like a, a better lifestyle that fully takes advantage of the incredible 
natural amenities that exist there, right? All over the East Coast, you know, Kathy Hochul in New York uh, just proposed um, in early January a very ambitious set of housing reforms for the state that, you know, I don't know where they will go in the legislature, but it, it's something she's pushing for. But the first thing that's going to come to everybody's mind is say, look, you're talking about adding more housing on Long Island, talking about adding more housing in Westchester. Um, what's going to happen to traffic? What's going to happen to parking? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the traffic situation in Long Island is it's quite bad. And she can say, look, well, we're going to increase LIRR service. So, you know, people who are commuting into the Manhattan Central Business District can ride the commuter rail. They can ride the train, which is totally true. That's great. But, you know, most people who live in the suburbs don't commute. To office jobs in the central city. You know, they do service sector work in the suburbs, right? They are providing medical care or child care. Um, they're, they're, they're doing local things in the communities where they live. Uh, they care about the traffic. They care about the parking. And you need to offer them solutions on the transportation side. They could say, not everybody, not all the time. Like, look, if you if what you're actually doing is loading up the whole family for a trip, or you're trying to haul a sofa like of course like get a you know don't 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 put a couch on your bicycle but like what what are what is it that you're really doing most of the time and it's just great you know when you see people with a couple of kids in the little kid bike car seats and they're cruising along and the kids are having fun and their parents are getting some exercise and they can roll right up to the school door and let them off instead of standing in some huge line with tailpipe emissions everywhere. Like that's just nice. That's, that's good for people. And everyone who is taking action on housing is going to face these questions about transportation and should be putting forward you know, the opportunity, at least, for people to try out micromobility, which I think goes viral. You know, it's when you see other people doing it. Mm. So it's like, oh, that looks cool. You know, yeah. let me give it a try. Yeah, yeah. And this gets to this question about micromobility for all. I mean, some of the use cases and, you know, people examples that you've given over the course of this conversation really speaks to the potential universality of the application of e-bikes. I mean, people can use them for a variety of reasons. But as we've seen in Denver, um, one of the things that has been most helpful in terms of structuring the incentives is structuring them based on income and being able to have higher incentives for folks with lower incomes and vice versa. I mean, you know, question for you is how do we get to micro mobility for all? Does it even matter? And, you know, who cares about this? Who should care about this and who doesn't? Uh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a hard question. You have to have um, an opinion about this. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think absolutely that, you know, targeting subsidy at people at the low end, you know, it makes sense from a basic standpoint of fairness. It, it's it, it it's a lower cost option, you know, so you don't necessarily need subsidy for more affluent types of families. I do think also, though, that you don't want... You know, a car to an extent in in most of the world uh, is a a status symbol, among other things, right? I mean, it's a practical transportation tool, but it also says, look, I am wealthy enough that I can afford this, right? I am not limited to riding Mm -hmm. the bus or to to riding a moped, right? I mean, you know, so different countries are different. The the United States is, is 
very rich and almost everybody, you know, has a car. You go to Southern Europe and you see lots of people uh, riding around on gas powered mopeds uh, all the time. And that's not a environmental choice necessarily. It's it's about right. the economics of Portugal, right? And so to an extent there, you know, if you become wealthy enough to buy a car, you want to do it not just for the practical value, but to show that you have, you know, ascended to a certain point um, in landscape. In the United States, you know, I think we don't want to code micromobility as like a like a poverty option, mm. right? Like you want to say this this is a good lifestyle uh, amenity. And and you know, you don't want to make it a snob thing. You you want it to be something that's accessible to everybody. Uh, but the fact is, I mean, e-bikes are so much cheaper than the typical car. And the typical American family has not just one, but two cars that are much more expensive than an e-bike. So, I mean, I, I worry more about maintaining a sort of a positive brand mm. concept around the whole idea. Uh, but it may be different in different parts of the world, you know, where automobile and ownership is lower and where you're talking about just sort of upgrading. Uh, what people are doing from things that are very loud, that are very polluting, um, and just frankly less practical than, than e-bikes that exist. One of the things that makes me think of is, you know, I've just spent the past weekend testing out different e-bikes because I'm looking at making, and this is a little bit embarrassing uh, considering how many micromobility conferences and things that I do, but I'm looking at purchasing my first e-bike. And uh, it, yeah, there I go. Um, and it's been fascinating basically going from some of the, the premium e-bike models like Cake uh, Ride Cake. I don't know if you've uh, tried out any of their vehicles, but they're amazing um, to some of the other options. And uh, I'll just say one of the things that's been impressive to me about micromobility overall is just the breadth, uh, depth, number of use cases that micromobility vehicles have been able to, um, to fulfill. So I, I want to ask a question actually about e-bike companies. And again, in, mm -hmm. in 1 billion Americans, you talk about how we can get to 1 billion Americans by, by birthing additional people, by allowing folks uh -huh. to immigrate here. How does that theory extend to companies and especially e-bike companies? I mean, right now we've got a handful of U.S.-based companies, and there's a number of micromobility companies that are out of Turkey or East Africa or Europe and India and, you know, really are, um, I would say, sort of leapfrogging uh, the U.S. in terms of the number uh, and type of uh, micromobility companies. Why is that? You know, how how could we get to, I don't want to say 1 billion uh, micromobility companies, but, you know, <laughs> like how, how would we get to just a, a greater um, base of companies here in the U.S.? I mean, it's interesting. It's a very chaotic uh, landscape right now in which both, you know, a, an advantage for consumers is that there are a lot of companies selling e-bikes and the barriers to entry of getting into manufacturing and selling e-bikes are relatively low compared to, you know, starting a car company. Uh, that also means it's a little bit confusing from a consumer mm. landscape. You know, it's a little bit challenging I was suffering decision paralysis for a while hmm. before I, I got Yeah, say more e about that. Yeah. You know, because I was like, okay, I should get an e-bike. And then it was like, well, which kind should I get? And I looked around <laughs> at a few, and there were a few that seemed pretty good, but I wasn't really sure which was best. And also, I knew that I hadn't investigated all of the options. And I was thinking, well, I got to do more research. I got to do more research. And eventually, a friend of mine was like, I don't know, like, don't be dumb. Just get one. That seems like it would be good. And, and write it, which is true, right? But it's different from how I make most, you know, major purchases, right? When I needed to get a refrigerator, you know, I looked at a, a 
pretty small number of major appliance manufacturers who sell fridges in the United States, you know, and I could say, look, I need one that fits the space in my kitchen. So that cut out a few. And, you know, I, I, I really had kicked the tires on all the possible options. Whereas I bought an e-bike without, uh, not without looking into it. I mean, I got one that had good reviews, et cetera, but it was not exhaustive. I mean, I had never heard of this company cake that you just mentioned, you know? Mm, yeah. got to check out ride review. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and it, so it would be easier, right? If there were like 10 companies that are, that are making e-bikes to feel like you fully know and fully understand the landscape at the same time, Micromobility is diverse, which is one of the real strengths of the ecosystem, right? I mean, you can get bikes that are really for off-road, that are really for commuting, that are really for cargo. You can get bikes that are cheap. You can get bikes that are expensive. It depends on what you need. And having the vehicle that suits your specific needs is a big part of the, the appeal in this place. So I wouldn't want to cut it down or anything like that. You know, Light manufacturing is just not necessarily the United States of America's comparative mm, advantage in the sure. universe. But, you know, we do, we have this big national push right now to try to develop a bigger battery industry, which fundamentally is the sort of underlying enabling technology here that has, you know, because a, a bicycle is a relatively simple kind of machine, right? Whereas the, the batteries are somewhat more complex, even though they're a little bit commoditized. So, you know, I don't know exactly if, if the future is necessarily us as a huge manufacturing hub. Interesting, uh, kind yeah. Of thing. You know, it might be, but but it, it I think it may just not be the most realistic estimate. <laughs> Where else do you think the U.S. might be the preeminent whatever? You know, if we're not going to be the preeminent manufacturer or the preeminent producer, could we be the preeminent consumer, software supplier? Where else might, might well, we you know, I mean, absolutely. I mean, software is, you know, become the American economy's bread and butter in in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Uh, you know, when I think thinking about transportation as a nexus of different kinds of vehicles that suit different kinds of needs is something that American companies have been toying with in a lot of different levels, and such some, you know. Uber, once you think about it, is like such a crude idea on some level, right? Mm. Like it's 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 like <laughs> I don't it's know a, that it, they would love that description of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, but it's when it first came out, it was like such a bolt of lightning into the mm. universe, right? But it was like, look, the phone knows where I am. And it knows where the drivers are. So it could just connect me at an arbitrary location to another person and relative to doing uh, a taxi dispatch. And it is so much more seamless. And you can just like summon this car and it comes at your door. But they're using the same cars everybody has been driving around all the time. Yeah. So we go from one person driving a car that is like 80% empty to now there's two of us in the car and you know, it's only 65% <laughs> empty, but it's still the question of like, what, what, why are we doing this? Like, why are we have empty cars around all over the place? Right. And so the question of like matching rides to what it is you actually need is a complicated logistical subject, right? That fundamentally, I think, is a is a largely software and IT problem rather than a sort of a, a vehicle manufacturing problem, right? We can make in, in the micromobility world has filled in this whole 
range of possible use cases with different kinds of vehicles. But what would really kind of supercharge that is do we have the software and the logistics to match people with vehicles and 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 uses, right? So that we are getting what we need all the time when we need it, right? Yeah, and that yeah. is a sort of a complicated high-end um, computery question that, you know, I think American <laughs> companies have had a lot of, you know, experience in dealing with sort of related kinds of problems. Yeah. To that point, though, I mean, if we were to have this conversation five years ago, I think mobility as a service would have been something that we spent most of the conversation talking about, you know, the mm-hmm. types of ride matching, vehicle matching that you were speaking about is exactly what that vision was five, 10 years ago, even. Um, and mm-hmm. what we found is that that <laughs> a combination of the fragmentation of the industry and the inability of the industry to be able to share data with each other, or for that matter, to integrate yes. software systems made mass almost impossible. Um, And then when Hmm. each company tried to um, do it on their own, Uber, for example, uh, offering multiple options or doing some level of transit integration, uh, even then they ran into some issues. So um, it seemed like there was this sort of promise of mass, but then, uh, you know, under delivery of it. Um, Do you think we'll see the revival of that? You know, how might e-bikes, shared micromobility, even owned micromobility start to fit back into this question of, of mass or software powered uh, mobility options. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think you know the most basic level is that large vehicles as a service let mm. owning your own micro mobility vehicle yeah. sort of work for you, right? Yep. I mean, if you don't have right, because there's always they talk about this in the um, just like in the electric car world, right? The, the the range anxiety kind of problem, and you say, look, like you have a person and. Most of the time they're taking short trips. So like, can't I just like build a car for you that suits your short trips? But people are like, no, because once every three weeks, like I want to go apple picking or something. And I, I don't, I, I don't want to run out of batteries, right? <laughs> One way that Uber was transformative for me in DC is that, you know, it let a lot of people let go of the idea that they needed a car for mm. occasional trips, right? So that if you could do 85% of your trips on an e-bike, then you don't need to own a car for the other 15% of trips, right? If you can go take an Uber. One reason that I don't think you see a lot of adoption of that model in, in most American cities is that the upside to giving up your car is low if you're going to have to have all the parking spaces anyway. Right. Mm. That's why I always loop back to land use because land Mm. space is the scarcest commodity in Mm. all these places. Right. So shifting to smaller vehicles and to just sort of spot use of the big vehicles has incredible benefits in terms of letting you take up less space. But you need to be able to realize the the benefits. I mean, I've been talking about my garage. I was talking about ADUs, um, but even just like less uh, grandiosely, I think most lots of people would like to have a bigger house, right? But in, in at least in my neighborhood, you are not allowed to swallow up your parking space with your house. It has to be a parking space, and it has to be a parking space even if you don't have a car. Right. Yeah. You're not allowed to say, look, I don't have a car. I don't need a street parking permit. I should be allowed to get rid of my parking space. You're also not allowed to say, I'm going to convert this. It's going to be e-bike parking for the whole block. 
because these things yeah. are smaller, but like you can't you can't do that either, right? So we have this regulatory blockage of sort of reaping the big financial upsides of going smaller. And that has meant that there's a lot of kind of toy business models that you can think about, but that they don't really present the full upside to people that ought to be there. You know, so that's part of the change that that I've been interested in, you know, since before any of these technologies existed, but it's just to say, look, we have dynamism and we have uncertainty in the transportation space. But the point of transportation is to complement the built environment. Mm. And if we don't allow the built environment to evolve, then the transportation innovation never reaches its its real potential. And we just don't know where it can go. Mm, yeah. I mean, picking up on a few of the threads that you started to uh, unroll, unweave, I don't remember (laughs) the right verb there. Um, But um, one of the things that we've been talking about over the past couple of micromobility conferences is just this idea of moving towards shared cars and privately owned micromobility um, mm-hmm. You know, speaking to the the use cases and the uh, the reasons why you would do that, um, just from a personal consumer, um, and also just from a space perspective in cities in particular. Um, but of course, um, what you're alluding to is that there's this rigidity of policy, the regulatory environment, not to mention the rigidity of the actual urban form that's in some ways uh, almost preventing that from happening. So question to you, Matthew, is, uh, you know, in terms of land use and housing, you've framed it as like, you can't have micromobility without land use and housing. Like there's sort of two sides of the same coin. And, uh, uh, you know, especially for the audience of micromobility world, what should they do about that? Like how how do micromobility advocates get involved in uh, land use and housing? Is there a place to do that? Is it the right thing to do? You know, um, mm-hmm. w- what are your thoughts? You know, so we have YIMBY, uh, it's Yes in My Backyard organizations in most major American cities right now that, you know, I would encourage people to look up. Uh, there's a kind of umbrella group, YIMBY Action. Uh, and, you know, so these are land use reform organizations. They have uh, had some success in pushing change. It would be great to see people who are interested in micromobility sort of engage with those groups and, and what it is they do. You know, one reason just like it, it's good, it's important, it has an important time into micromobility. The second is, you know, people are naturally suspicious uh, mm-hmm. of, of any kind of organization and sort of reform group and like what's going on here. And in some ways it would be, it would be good to have people say, look, like, yeah, these people, like they, they, they want to sell you e-bikes. Like that's, that's, that's why they want more people to come live here. Um, Cause it's like perfectly good reason, you know, like, <laughs> like just like, um, you know, e-bikes are, are crushing it in Denver and they would crush it even more if even more people could come to Denver and also more people <laughs> will be able to fit sure. in the city if these things are smaller. Right. I mean, communities need, um, you know, boosters uh, mm. around these things. They're like, 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 this is great. Right. Uh, a kind of, you know, I say there's a strain of optimism that is really deep in American culture and society. But there's also a strain of car 
orientation that's very strong in American society. <laughs> and those two are not the same, yeah. Well, no, but they've actually collided with each other mm. to the point where people have started to get like really down on the idea of growth in their community because mm. it's going to put more cars on the road or it's going to, you know, like, how, how am I going to get to the supermarket, right? And it's like the, the solution here is land use reform and micromobility to let us be mm. like the kind of people... Uh, who as Americans, I think we want to be, which is people who are excited about our country, about our state, about our city, about our community, who want more people to come, who want to see more things going on, who want to believe we have the possibility to do more. And that just means, you know, uh, taking geography seriously, uh, not geography, um, geometry seriously. And to say, look, if everybody all the time is carting empty space with them wherever they go like we we, we don't fit and we become this very sort of pessimistic <laughs> zero sum oh my god you know don't let them build an apartment sure, there sure. Kind, kind of people which is like a bummer and I don't think that's who any of us really want to be yeah yeah I mean some of the things that you're talking about get positioned as left versus right issues mm-hmm. and I you know especially with micromobility industries we've been trying to avoid uh any partisanship or a, you know partisanship mm-hmm. divide how do you think micromobility advocates can broaden their political coalition and you know how would you frame this issue so you could appeal to most voters you know i mean i think to some extent you just you have to listen um mm. to to what it is people say and you know listen to what conservatives have to say and and try to echo them and and try to find things that they're interested in but you know there's just a, there's a narrative of freedom that is powerful across parties in the United States of America. And I think that's just the important point to emphasize that micromobility is freedom itself on a lot of levels. You know, it's the ability to get more places to fit into more spots to to take yourself into new dimensions. But also the policy change we need is really not to make people, you know, go around in a cargo bike, but it is to let people say, I can use this. Like I, I can reuse my space for other things because I have these micromobility solutions, but the government is not letting me that, you know, planners sat down sometime in 1964 and were like, this is This is how many cars everybody needs. This is how everything has to work. And we're here, you know, decades later, uh, technology has dramatically altered and we haven't updated any of these rules in in this kind of way. And it's it's a classic story. It, It connects absolutely to things progressives care about in terms of the environment. But these are just costly economic regulation. They are leading to a lot of waste, a lot of waste of steel, a lot of waste Mm. of energy, a lot of waste of space. And it is preventing us from taking advantage of, uh, you know, changes and entrepreneurial activity and all kinds of other good things that conservatives care about. And based on what you just said, you know, why don't you think more libertarians or folks on the right are shouting for micromobility solutions that depend less on government intervention than, you know, automobiles, electric automobiles, even public transit, uh, transportation modes? 
Well, you know, I don't know. I got to tell you, I just uh, later tonight, I'm going to a parking reform happy hour that is oh, happening oh, in downtown exciting. Washington, yeah. D.C. It is being, <laughs> it is being yeah. sponsored by uh, some people from some center-right organizations, uh, the Mercatus Center. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're working on it, right? We're trying, okay. to, we're, trying to, we're trying to build bridges here. I, look, you know... Uh, there's a big divide in American politics based on geography, right? You look at a map of anywhere in the country, a very conservative place. Uh, my um, my wife's parents live in sort of Western Texas in, in the Hill Country. And so you look at a precinct map out there and it's deep, 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 deep red. But then you look at the, the town of Kerrville, which is not a big city by any means, but, it, but it's a town. You look at the precinct that's like downtown Kerrville and it's faint blue. You know, like it's the only <laughs> island of liberals is the people who live in town in this rural, very conservative part of the state. So naturally, anything that relates to city living or like where space is at a premium uh, comes to be associated with liberals and, and sort of left progressive politics, which is fine. Um but it, it is important to say, look, like on the merits, you know, there's a lot of libertarian strands to this. We are talking about getting away from a prescriptive planning regime and being more open to innovation and disruptors and things here. And just remembering to speak that language a little bit so that voters who don't as naturally affiliate, affiliate with the idea of, uh, oh, I saw these pictures of Copenhagen and it looked nice, right? Because like who, who that message appeals to is different from the person who says like, we don't need the big government telling us what, what, what we need in our, in our parking garage. Um, but it's the same message, you know, really for everyone is that we can have a more diverse, um, set of transportation options and and a wealthier, more dynamic society. Yeah. And Matthew, maybe one final question before I ask you one final question. So one penultimate mm -hmm. question. Um, and, and thank you again for joining us for uh, this discussion. It's been uh, absolutely fascinating hearing your perspective on both being an e-bike dad and then also just on the, the policies and things we need to do. So you've mentioned parking reform, you've mentioned land use, you've mentioned mm -hmm. housing, um, even some incentives. But, you know, what else? Are there any other policy measures that you think would be the most successful at shifting people away from cars and towards micromobility? I mean, I, I do think land use is is key, but as these EV incentives get bigger and start rolling out more, um, we, we just we really need to look more carefully at what we're incentivizing and why. And are we getting the numbers right on that to say, well, we need a larger incentive for electric vehicles because they're more expensive, which I which I think is the logic Congress is working mm -hmm. with. Like that doesn't that doesn't really make sense, right? The incentive mm -hmm. should be scaled to the social benefits, you know, not not vice versa. I don't I don't really think Congress got that balance right uh, in Inflation Reduction Act and. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something it's something that we're going to need the federal government to look at, uh, because if you if you have an incentive to buy an electric vehicle that is actually larger than the cost of a than the total cost of a mid range e-bike. Right. That's a huge thumb on the scales against um, e-bike manufacturers that we really should not have. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, just a couple of months ago, Secretary Buttigieg came out and said, um, we didn't get the e-bike tax credit in the Inflation Reduction Act. We're probably not going to get it this year. And I think everybody in the micromobility industry did just a huge sigh of like, oh, gosh, again, 
um, you know, really looking for somebody to pick up the political mantle of um, e-bike tax credits or bike tax credits or bike policy writ large in the federal government now that uh, Earl Blumenauer has left. Yes. So, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Leaving a, a huge vacuum, unfortunately. So again, Matthew, really thank you uh, for, for joining us uh, and for sharing your experience about being an e-bike dad, which um, before you had described what it actually meant, I was thinking of like, you know, Daenerys Targaryen uh, being the mother. Of oh, Daenerys yeah. No, no, I am, I am not. I am not the father of e-bikes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew, one of the things um, that we, uh, you, we've done as part of Micro Mobility World is launch uh, the Writer's Choice Awards. I don't know if you've voted yet or uh, would vote, but, uh, you know, a series of awards basically for the top everything in the micro mobility industry. So um, I'm going to ask you uh, three three of your tops. What's your top e-bike? What's your top e-bike for dads? And who's the top e-bike dad? <laughs> you know, I, I, I really, you know, I, I, um, what, what do I want to say? Uh, you know, the, uh, I, 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 I have enjoyed my Brad city, uh, experience with, with, with okay. them as a company. The, the, the Brad wagon seems, uh, it's a very dad friendly, you know, it's good for, <laughs> for, good for touting kids. For all the dads out there. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you can, you can, you can move, you can move a lot there. Um, uh, my, my friend Tom, uh, was my e-bike inspiration. So, you know, he's, he's not really involved in, in the policy world at all, but he's a, he's been an important bike influencer in, in my life so oh, you know, okay I'll, I'll to him. <laughs> here's to tom uh thank yeah. you again really appreciate it and uh we'll hope to see you out there riding uh, your e-bike in dc okay thank you <laughs>